Welcome to Machine Learning. Why AI? It's a great question. Well, in yesterday's discussion about the next economy, what I said was that the reason why AI is becoming more widespread is because of high quality labor and the desire to, to build high quality labor means that you replace the human element of the manual labor. So as you replace that labor with automation, you get a higher quality product and you get more efficiency. That has always been the goal of the Industrial Revolution, was not to keep human labor working, but to eventually replace it with automation. So that means that the, the work that people will do will be done by machines. And so that does seem like kind of a paradox because people need jobs and jobs provide income and that income then allows them to take care of their families. However, that was not the goal of the Industrial Revolution and um, was not the goal of the industrialists themselves. So given that, given that uh, goal, we have to look at the way uh, AI is transforming our economy. And when you look at the number of things that are built now through automation and the quality of the products it produces, you can see why replacing the human labor aspect was critical. So where does that leave human beings? Well, it, I don't, I'm not anti-human. I love human beings. I think that uh, the world is a better place because we're here. But it's where our role is, is changing, it's transforming. And the computer and the robots are extensions of the mind. So they, they begin to be tools. And so the idea of a singularity, in my opinion, is ridiculous because that would replace uh, humans with machines or machines would transform into, or humans would transform into machines. And so that singularity uh, is very strange. Now, if you believe that the in a, a generalized AI which has never been proven, but if you believe in that generalized AI theory, then what you believe the singularity would represent is the ability for machines to process more information than human beings. And our brains are amazing universes. They literally have about the same complexity as the universe. However, the... Uh, the interesting aspect of that is with that level of intelligence, what could we do with it? And so we're seeing lots of things that um, have been fairly hidden from us in terms of knowledge, 
that we're now becoming aware of. So we're becoming aware of behaviors, we're becoming aware of different scientific principles and facts, we're collaborating and sharing information with each other like we've never done before, and our quality of life is increasing. So as you think about it, what would then the implications of machines doing more automation would be to improve quality of life for humans? It is really about the human beings on this earth. It's about our experience here. And that's why I I do share many of the spiritual aspects because we are spiritual beings having an earthly experience. And, you know, machines don't have a soul. They don't have feelings like we do. They can emulate or mimic feelings. They can mimic behaviors. But basically what's happening is statistical state analysis. When you look at those LSTMs, they they are retaining long-term memory, moving across the nodes or layers and keeping track of what the state of that information is from one transition to another. And then it's applying a attention cell to figure out what is being influenced. And much like our brain, it tells us what is important. And so the two aspects of philosophy are interest and importance. And that's the same thing with the machine, with the LSTM, is that it can tell what is important and what is interesting from the state of the data. And so when we look at that, we go, is that sentient? Is that thinking? Well, it's, it's maintaining statistical state. It's telling and retaining what is uh, attention is important. So we begin to model these mechanical reasoning and behaviors. And sometimes people over, because they don't understand the mathematics or they don't understand the science of what... Um, how this technology is created and utilized, they begin to create a religion. And it's really amazing because they are creating a religion within the technology itself. And so, you know, the argument of Darwinism in the machine is, is being implemented because of their belief systems. And that's really hurt uh, the power of computing or AI because they get this, I call it the evolutionary virus, is they get this idea that these machines are going to evolve into sentient beings. And so when they get that idea in their mind, then they start having it do strange things. They give it full autonomy, like on a race car, they give it full autonomy without discrete guidelines or discrete programming that will prevent the car from setting a goal, thinking that the best way for it to win is to drive around in a circle because somewhere in its reinforcement learning algorithm, it discovered that when it was trying to accumulate points or or wins, that it 
it drove around in a circle. So it, it implements this strategy to acquire greater points from its training and from the, the neuron patterns that it has saved. And so it attempts to drive around in a circle on the racetrack and it runs into the wall. And so, you know, they're the dream of thinking machines becomes too much of an obsession and they forget that the machine uh, must stay within discrete uh, laws. And that's what we, we just saw with Ralph is that they very successfully drove across America, hands-free across America. And the machine was doing a very good job of identifying road edges, what was a road, and you know, it was using neural nets to figure out and learn these patterns and to recognize boundaries. And when it couldn't make that decision based whatever on threshold or logic, then uh, it would defer to a emergency algorithm, maybe it sounded an alarm. I'm not sure what how they would know that it had lost detection of the road edge. But then you move forward 50 years and you look at where we are today with machines that are detecting roads, but not only roads, the, the lines on the road and their position on the road, end-to-end -end algorithms that detect, you know, what is the, the width of the road, where is a safe navigation place on the road, if the road doesn't have markings, where can I navigate? Are there cars to the left and right of me, in front of me, or back of me? Uh, are there pedestrians walking? You know, what is that pedestrian doing? I mean, what if the pedestrian was walking uh, along the side of a freeway, which you're not supposed to, but um, I've seen people walking along the side of a freeway. What does the self-driving car do then? I mean, it's an untrained case. Does it think that it's a pedestrian attempting to cross the road and on the high-speed freeway, does it slam on its brakes? I mean, what will it do? Now, with a human being, you may or may not understand what it'll do. Perhaps, you know, the other day, um, I was coming to an intersection and light was changing. I was thinking, can I make it through the intersection? And I was like, no, I'm not going to be able to make it through the intersection. There's a car that is preparing to turn and I need to slow down. And I was watching the cars behind me to see if they were going to run into the back of me as I was slowing down. And I was thinking, how did I discern that? You know, did I make that judgment call? And no, I couldn't make it through. You know, those are split-second uh, decisions. You may, it may seem like when you're driving, you've got lots of time, but you really don't. They're happening. You're, you're making lots of decisions within a few seconds uh, because of the speed and velocity that you're moving at. And so we get so comfortable when we start thinking about how fast we're driving uh, and everything is a function of you know, our impatience or our time to get to one location or another, but we don't realize the displacement velocities that are occurring. And so, you know, while we're in the vehicle, you know, we feel like we're moving slow, but in actuality, you're moving, your body is moving 
40, 50, 60, 70 miles an hour um, through space. And uh, we're making very rapid judgment calls about, you know, when to apply the brake, when to apply the gas, when to, you know, go through an intersection, when not to. And then you apply that to self-learning algorithms and they have to be capable of making those same uh, decisions also. Well, what's new? You know, why AI? You know, that's a, I wanted to have a, a guest speaker talk about that, you know, and I'm attempting to do it now and probably not doing nearly as good a, well, you know, I'm doing great. I'm smart. I can figure things out. So one other thing that's important too is that you don't look to other people and say, oh, they're, they're, they have 42 million people to listen to them. They must know everything. They may not know everything. You know, how, how do you know what they've studied? Well, they could have a PhD behind their name. Yeah, well, they studied algorithms, great. But have they worked in uh, solving real world problems? Have they applied the knowledge that they have learned? It may be theoretical. They may understand the theory of the mathematics. They may understand the equations for which those uh, algorithms were created and the weaknesses and strengths of those equations, which I've done. I've done studies of all kinds of equations when I was in college and even after college. And you learn a lot about what the equations can and can't do. And that, you know, there's there's problems even in AI with localization when trying to find uh, minimums on the maps for the weights. And so there's various algorithms that were built to solve the local minimum problem. One of which is the LSTM because it has the hidden layer which can remove data out of the gate. It can prevent certain data from passing on to the next layer. Well, and it solves, LSTM solve a lot of the problems that the RN uh, re recurrent neural nets couldn't as uh, because it had the it had the three states. It had that short-term memory, the long-term memory, and then it this hidden layer and then soon you know we'll start seeing more uh, networks that describe attention because we've got to move to the ability to take natural language text and summarize it so we'll you know there'll be libraries that we can use for text summarization and I think we're start, gonna start seeing more NLP, natural language processing jobs. I saw a few, not a lot, but a few. And I saw quite a few uh, jobs that were related to different deep learning network methodology like PyTorch, Keras, uh, deep learning. And they're applying these out these networks to large data sets, and they're looking for pattern. 
So the world of data science is actually fairly fascinating in that the companies with large amounts of data are recognizing that that data is valuable and needs to be understood. But still there's the human element. Let's say you invest all this money into understanding data and then you have all these powerful analytics but people are biased towards looking at the analytics and studying them. Or there's no voice in the business intelligence community to bring the conclusions of the data to decision makers. Then why are companies um, investing so heavily into data science and business analytics? And the answer might be because they want to make sure that they are not left out. There's kind of this trend, we want to make sure we have a programmer. Why do you want to have a programmer? They're expensive. We need to have a programmer because everyone else has a programmer. And they may not understand what that person is capable of doing. Um, and so they, that person is highly underutilized. And that's what I'm saying is that maybe in companies too, whole departments are underutilized. That they're not really understanding the value of business intelligence as it can be used to make decisions based on data. So there's a different trend that has to go on uh, when we move towards database decision making. And, uh, you know, you look at things, you know, again, we've, we've wondered about medical world and you know, what is ours, let's say, you know, uh, any, any material that's taken from our body, is that ours or is that, how long can it be used for scientific research, can they use our blood, can they use our tissue? What if they are doing genetic uh, studies on it and extracting certain features from our genetics? Well, the same could be true of data. It's kind of alarming, but yeah, you can cross over into data. Let's say, you know, in the example of the intelligent toothbrush, I, I bet I could come up with something besides just a toothbrush. Uh, let's see, what else could we come up with that... Uh, might be something that could gather lots of data. Well, let's say, let's say, let's look at glasses, for example. All right, with glasses, we only get a certain prescription, and that prescription then, you know, is fit to the curvature of our eye, and, you know, that, that enhances our ability to see. But why can't we use AI to automatically, in real time, adjust lenses to our focal point. And so we're always getting a, a, the best possible imaging from whatever we're looking. Okay, so we have an intelligent eyeglass. And it has the ability, like the Bionic Man, to do telescopic vision. Like if you want to see, you know, a mile away, you could, you know, it could enhance the 
the focal points so that you can see a mile away. If you want to see close, you're reading up detail close and it can adjust like a bifocal to, to uh, read closely. And it can be monitoring and predicting, you know, where we're looking and, and uh, quickly making those adjustments so we're getting very good imaging. And in the left and right eye, maybe the left eye is weaker than the right eye. And so it, it's gonna need more more adjusting so that uh, things stay in focus. And it's got to then work correctly with the brain so that the brain is not irritating to the focal. You don't have two different focal points that then are causing distortion in the brain that, that uh, uh, causes headaches. So it, it has to be able to do adjustments and still uh, you know, not cause enough distortion that it's causing headaches in the brain. Well, then what else could that data could collect? Well, it, it could collect your GPS, where you're looking. It could collect the, the amount of ambient light that's been surrounding you. It could collect the UV, you know, for example, at night, the glasses could switch to UV and you could see in the dark. It would be as if you're walking around in the daylight, but it's in the dark. Um, but the, the communication could be uploaded to cloud and then someone could be analyzing what you're looking at. Maybe they're, you know, they can see what products you're interested in or people that you find attractive and, you know, it's working to collect that information and it's figuring out who the other person is and it's creating scripts or dialogues, generative text and sending that to them. Now, this is a bizarre world we live in, but, you know, we have software now that will write our emails for us. And, you know, it'll write essays for it. It'll write stories for us. It'll create movies for us. All computer generated. And so we cannot assume all the time that what we're reading is from the other person. It may have been generated by a machine. And so the world of Turing is, is coming into greater reality for us as machines start to do a lot of our menial tasks of correspondence. We saw early that Google had a, uh, a version of GPT-3, but was capable of making a phone call, talking to a person, asking for an appointment, confirming an appointment, and then delivering that appointment to the end user without the end user doing anything. And so we had a human being on the other side who couldn't recognize that she was talking to a machine and she was setting up an appointment. Well, now what if happens if now, instead of having receptionist, you have GPT-3 receptionist, and GPT-3 talks to GPT-3, and so you have the machine-to-machine -machine transactions that are occurring. And so the interactions in the world could start to increase for more machine-to-machine -machine tra uh, transactions. 
and we have a huge amount of that now, machine to machine. I was uh, getting a uh, cabin filter for my car, and in the process of doing that, I needed to call my wife and have her transfer some money so I could make the purchase. So she transferred the money, and I called her back, and she said, I've transferred the money. And then I put the card in, and the card transacted with a bank, and funds from that bank were, uh, a transaction was sent from one bank to another bank, and electronic funds were transferred back, eventually to the merchant the transaction was complete. And that all happened within a few seconds in near real time. And so, uh, you know, the world of machine-to-machine transactions is going to increase. We have the world of machine, human-to-machine translation, and then we have the world where Um, we can do machine-to-machine transactions, then we have to say that in the 21st century, as technology becomes more prevalent in our life, that it will do more things for us in an automated fashion, and we will just rely on it. You'll have to rely on it. And when there's problems, we will either interact with the machine to let it notify that there was a problem, and statistically, they get, they could ignore us, or they could learn from us about these anomalies. It's always difficult to know with statistics when you look at it, for example, even with fraud. You know, there's a certain percentage of all transactions are fraudulent. They know that there's a certain percentage. But in one year, the number of, in, during COVID, the number of cases of fraud doubled. And so that means that the attempts to create fraudulent transactions increased due to opportunity. So more people were on line making purchases. And as I've talked in the previous podcast before, the two the two hottest areas for attempted fraud were hotel and leisure because you're you know they assume that everyone who's traveling is using credit card and the purchase of recreational toys. I found that uh, those two sectors fairly interesting. And the question is is do the banks or the credit card companies, knowing that this trend exists, then put higher scrutiny in those sectors? You know, what uh, what measures can you do to prevent fraudulent transaction in those two sectors? And you have to also consider the effect of insurance. So, you know, as we talked about the risk of loans, there's also the risk of fraud, but there's the bad rate, and as long as the earnings are not decreasing, 
then the company is satisfied and tolerates the, the bad rates or the rate default rates that are going on. And so they're, there may not be as alarmed as you think about the fraud, fraud because they're covered, that's covered by insurance and it does not affect the overall earnings. Yes, it does cost them, but at the same time, as long as it does not decrease, the perception does not uh, decrease that there is a decline in the... Uh, uh, decline in the overall safety of the transaction and people are afraid to use their credit cards, then they will continue to tolerate and divert, you know, some resources towards the fraud detection. Now, one thing that I find interesting is if, if the person behind the scenes is a corporation, let's say it's a corporation committing the fraud and one company decides and discovers that this company is uh, attempting to commit fraudulent transactions, will that company put a lawsuit against the other company? And the answer is, I think it depends. Again, you know, going into lawsuits is expensive. Um, so then will things be, how will how will uh, cyber crimes be prosecuted? Who are, are there going to be cyber cops that um, detect when these transactions occur, and then they they trace it down to the server, and you get a knock on the door? You know, how is it going to go down? And uh, we don't know those answers right now. And uh, and so, you know, from data science standpoint. You look at the anomalies, and and then you try to uh, calculate maybe in that 95th percentile, looking at the outlier cases, like strange frequency occurrences, strange times of day, strange locations, and the machine deep learning has to learn the behavior, spending behavior of the customers. So then it says, you know, well, customer, you know, usually buys clothes and pays for education with their credit card. And all of a sudden, you know, there's a vacation that pops up on the grid and looks at the frequency of that vacation and says, you know, that's a anomaly. You know, that, that doesn't happen on a frequent basis. One time I was, uh, forget what I was using the credit card for, but we, we made a, some purchases on it that's before I realized how dangerous they were, but um, we're making some purchase on it. And then I got a call from the bank and it said, you know, hey, there's a couple of purchases that have been, large purchases that have been made on your card. And, you know, I, and, uh, and they wanted to know if it was, you know, me making those purchases. And I had to tell them, yeah, I, you know, those was, uh, purchases were made by me. But even back in the, in the day, which was several, you know, maybe decades ago when that occurred, uh, that they were watching, you know, thresholds for these types of behaviors. And so, you know, that, that gave you as a consumer a good feeling that, hey, they're watching out for my welfare 
because they're watching the transactions that are occurring. Well, now I get LifeLock and I want to have it watch everything because um, you know, vital information is so easy now with high-powered machines to, to crack. And so, you know, going with proven vendors becomes now a choice. I was talking to a colleague and they were saying, well, yeah, we use PayPal. And I said, why do you use PayPal? And they said, because of cybercrime that PayPal is very good at protecting transactions and I don't have to worry about uh, the integrity of the transaction and, and the security of it. So, you know, they're, they're inclined to work with PayPal. I said, well, why not work with Amazon? And they were saying that Amazon was not as good in their opinion. So, you know, there's, there are these, um, there are these considerations to make when looking at security as a means for determining which vendor you, you will use for your transactions in the future. Well, and I, I found that, uh, That uh, K nearest was has been K nearest nearest neighbor is very good at uh, classifying different categories. So you can use K means clustering to identify different groupings, and then you can use K nearest to make predictions on different categorical data. And that's important because a lot of business is categorical data. So I've been, you know, re-looking at uh, K nearest neighbor for making predictions about categorical data. And even, you know, looking at existing data and questioning whether or not there are outliers in that data. And those outliers in the data might be potential problems. So... Um, hopefully we can see the long-term benefit of why they're AI. Um, and the reason I would say the why AI at this point is improved productivity, quality, and improved efficiency. You know, what, why in uh, the world of thinking machines do we have processes that are not automated? You know, why haven't, let's say for example on a dairy, you know, it's a pretty much of a repetitive process for milking the, the cows. Why couldn't robots feed the cows? Why couldn't robots milk the cows and clean up? after the cows and you know in that sense for our food production that those processes 
have largely still remained uh, non-automated. But I think that those types of things will start to change. Our world is definitely transforming. You know, as I get older and I, you know, look at the processes for how things are done, we realize that it really, automation still has very limited ranges of capability. And so, you know, it doesn't do everything. There is not generalized AI in the machine, and so it cannot learn and improve from its environment like human beings can. We adapt, we learn, we perceive, we adjust. Well, on the other side too is, you know, we have the ability to have compassion. I think that's a huge factor that a machine doesn't have is compassion. And so, you know, why AI in terms of compassion is like, I, I don't know, what's from compassion? Why do I need to be concerned about it? And uh, my daughter was saying that she went down to the homeless shelter and took water. She bought $25 worth of water yesterday. It was pretty hot. And she was distributing free water to several of the homeless people. And they were so excited that she cared and was bringing water to them. And they were thanking her and very grateful for that life-saving water. <clears throat> you know, it's, we got to be careful against being judgmental. It was a very kind thing that she did, and I thought, that really is nice. No one uh, was not someone else's idea to motivate you to go do that. You did that of your own free will, and it made her feel really good. And I said, you know, that's great. They were grateful, and she said, one lady came up and gave her a hug and thanked her. And I said, you know, Mary, that's such a great thing that you did, that you took time out of your life, you took resources that are valuable to you, and you helped another human being because you could see a need. And isn't that what human beings are good at? And so... It would go outside the realm of why AI. AI is following statistical process, mathematical, quantitative, statistical process. But human beings have the quality of being kind, of being generous, of showing love, and making a connection with another human being. And that connection to the value of another human being is what makes us so unique in the world of this universe, or in the world and in the universe. And it's what draws attention to us as an entity is our ability to be kind to others and to help someone who has less. And if technology will help the four billion at the bottom of the pyramid, I say that technology is good. And we know that 
with inflation being deflated, you know, being exported all over the world uh, through inflationary monetary policies, you have devaluating currencies, that we need to have higher efficiency in order to survive. And so the inevitability of AI is that we need efficiency to survive, therefore we need the machines to do more for us for less. So our food production needs to be abundant enough that it is remains a small percentage of our salary to afford. Our roads built by machines reducing the cost of labor and um, increasing decreasing the amount of time to complete the road. All these factors come into play for building the future. And so there's a race. There's a race to establish the AI of the future that will be adopted and accepted by the consumer. So that um, that co- competition is is health, healthy, and um, also effective for helping build the future. Well. There we go, our discussion of AI and why AI. Give it a good shot at it and see what you think. So until next week, keep on programming, learn Python, pandas, and machine learning. And begin to think about data analytics. Because the future is here and you need to be a part of it.